You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Crowdcast. My name is Hallie. I am the events manager at Skylight Books, which is here in Los Angeles. Without further ado, um, it is my great pleasure to introduce to you Nona Willis-Aronowitz. Nona is the sex and love columnist for Teen Vogue. Her work has been published in the New York Times, The Cut, Elle, Vice, The Washington Post, and Playboy, among many others. She is the co-author of Girl Drive, Crisscrossing America, Redefining Feminism. She is also the editor of an award-winning anthology of Ellen Willis's rock criticism called Out of the Vinyl Deeps, as well as a comprehensive collection of her mother's work, The Essential Ellen Willis, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism. Um, she will be joined by Anne Friedman at some point. I'll introduce Anne, because um, we love Anne. <laughs> Anne Friedman is a journalist, podcaster, and co-author of the best-selling book, Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close. Please join me in welcoming Nona to the stage for a reading. Hi, everyone. Um, I love Skylight Books, always have, so I'm really excited to be here. The passage I'm going to read requires a little bit of setup. It's in a... Um, it's in a chapter called In It for the Dick, which basically explores the um, concept of heteropessimism and the history of radical lesbianism. Heteropessimism is a term coined by Asa Saracen that basically explains the phenomenon of straight people, especially, especially straight women, claiming that they're straight, but then saying things like men are trash or I wish I were gay because it's, you know, it's a nightmare out here, um, being kind of grudgingly straight. And I thought it was interesting that pretty much only queer people were writing about this concept when actually straight people should probably enter the chat. Um, and so after talking a lot about radical lesbianism and getting a text from a woman I have a crush on, um, that, that read, God, I would hate to be straight. Um, I started thinking more about actively claiming my sexual orientation. So here goes. Throughout the years, I've engaged in tons of identity pessimism. I've pointed out that I'm a New Yorker, not an embarrassing American, or I'm Jewish, so my family never enslaved anybody. I've said similar things to distance myself from a middle-class intellectual roots, my marital status, and of course, my heterosexuality. Sure, I like to fuck men, but I get with women here and there. I'm not monogamous. I like to dominate my male partners from time to time. These qualifiers, while tempting, wash one's hands of any duty or accountability. They mute the rallying cries of revolution. To be permanently, preemptively disappointed in heterosexuality is to refuse the possibility of changing straight culture for the better, Saracen wrote. If I really was committed to loving and fucking men, I would have to stop feeling sheepish and inert. That meant taking a little bit of ownership, acknowledging a tiny stake in something larger, a responsibility for making it better. I didn't fully understand what this commitment could look like until one fall weekend in October 2020, 
when I started reading Jane Ward's book, The Tragedy of Heterosexuality. It turns the typical narrative of queer suffering on its head, calling for, quote, renewed investigation into this assumption that heterosexuality is easier than being queer. The sole focus on the trauma of queerness, she writes, quote, masks the gendered suffering produced by straight culture, as well as queer sensations of freedom that result from having escaped not homophobia, but heterosexual misery. The book came out in the midst of the pandemic at the tail end of the supremely stressful 2020 election and during another moment when I was very turned off by most men. Am I straight? Do I ever wanna have sex with another dude, another person again? I wrote to my journal in melodramatic frustration. Right now I feel scared, pearl clutchy, like no guy can strike the balance of sexy but not aggressive, tender but not crushingly boring. I want something, but I have absolutely no, no idea what. How can I know that something is missing but not have the imagination to fill that space with my desire? And then the classic complaint. I'm not queer, but not asexual, but I also profoundly distrust men right now. Amid all this, a press copy of Jane Ward's book arrived. I eyed it nervously. I was already in a deep shame spiral about how I could never fully access the part of me who might be queer that my heterosexuality was so indoctrinated that even my vagina's arousal mechanisms had learned it. Did I really have to read a book that would worsen my mood? At first, yes, the book made me feel like hetero, hetero garbage. Chapter after chapter outlined in harrowing detail about bro how broken and bleak straight culture is, how much pain it's caused, and yet how little it's challenged by its participants. There's a chapter full of quotes from queer interviewees that are essentially different versions of Layla's God, I would hate to be straight text. But then I got to the last chapter where Ward describes the concept of deep heterosexuality. Deep heterosexuality proclaims, if straight women and men are actually attracted to each other, that is excellent. Now let's expand the notion of heterosexual attraction to include such a powerful longing for the full humanity of women and for the sexual vulnerability of men, that anything less becomes suspect as authentic heterosexual desire. Ward says the solution isn't to accept the quote unquote tragedy, nor to a defect to queerness. Echoing Carmen Maria Machado and other queer theorists, she warned that idealizing queer relationships is counterproductive. Ward also doubts the proposed strategy of queering straight relationships with things like pegging, BDSM, or polyamory. Honestly, I was relieved. I didn't think I could accept anyone telling me what kind of sex act would liberate me, especially if the goal was political purity. The solution Ward writes is actually to become more straight, owning that identity and resolving to enact the best version of it. If heterosexuality weren't considered the default, Ward asks, how might straight women and men articulate what propels them toward each other, despite all the difficulty? For men who date and have sex with women, that would mean taking a cue from lesbians who share their sexual attraction to women by actually liking and identifying with their female partners. This necessitates being a partner who knows how to recognize and reject the misogyny built into so many hetero relationships. Ward notes that many lesbians observe some men's contempt for women and find it suspicious. If you're supposedly so straight, why do you seem to care more about impressing other men than the women you purport to desire? But she says, straight women also have work to do. Once they've affirmed their commitment to being straight, Ward advises them not to just blindly follow a script, but to find their own unique heterosexual desire. 
That means being able to articulate the specific reasons they love men and or are attracted to them. I arranged a phone date with Ward, nervous she would pity my listless complaints about straightness like Layla had, but she didn't, at least not to my, to my face. Instead, she told me it was refreshing for hetero women to say they were emphatically in it for the dick. If women love sex with men, great, Ward says. You're working from a place of desire. Saracen describes a similar feeling after hearing the writer Larissa Pham on Heron Walker's podcast, Why Do I Like Men? Pham does cite reasons why she finds men desirable, such as big arms, penis, the way men smell. For all their obviousness, these observations are quite rarely voiced. Hearing them spoken so plainly exposes how heteropessimism has worked to silence articulations of women's desire. I'm gonna skip a couple of, no, actually, I'll skip a couple in a second. Karen Walker, a trans woman who used to identify as a gay man, initially had a different question than her podcast title. It was the same question the radical lesbians asked and the same question I'd been asking myself. How can I stop liking men? No matter how many times a man ghosted me, disposed of me, casually crossed my boundaries or treated me however he wanted, I would still come back for more, she wrote in W Magazine. It confused me how I could change something as seemingly fixed as my gender, if for no other reason than the fact that it caused me pain. Yet there I was, powerless to change my desire no matter how painful I found its consequences. She decided that asking why she desired men was perhaps a more productive line of inquiry. I similarly realized that I'd spent a huge amount of time figuring out why I wasn't a lesbian, but not all that much time thinking about Walker's titular question, why I loved and lusted after men in particular. So I made my own list, which included rather specific items like narrow, smaller bodies with dicks, come, looking at it, tasting it, watching it spurt out, <sighs> spooning a cute, muscular, hairy butt, the aching desire an erection exposes. Once I saw it all written down, it occurred to me that my quote unquote deep heterosexuality had already been in process for a long time. Skipping ahead. The romantic and emotional aspects of my attraction with men were harder to explain, but they weren't any less profound. At first, I thought I might be hetero in the traditional sense, attracted to difference and unknowability. But Ward challenges this idea, explaining that for some radical queers, identification fosters eroticism. It has for me too. My love for a man has at times grown out of similarity, a movie that made us both cry, an inside joke we both find hilarious, the loss of a parent breeding deep mutual empathy. My bond with Moore, a character of a previous chapter, wasn't just physical. It also involved the act of overthinking, a distinctly Jewish quality we shared. Finally, after turning it over and over in my mind, I sort of understood what my mother meant by her basic love for men. I decided that perhaps the answer to why I loved the men I loved was too intrinsic, too elemental to break down. And that ultimately, I didn't owe anyone an explanation. Another lesson I've gleaned from queer friends who refuse to back up the authenticity of their sexual identity with data points. Once a desire has been consciously determined, the reasons start to seem less important. As Walker concluded after all her interrogation, who cares? I like men and that's that. Still, it was a treat to slow down and recall these sweet moments of my heterosexual life, hard earned yet primordial 
outside the context of rubbing one out or regaling a friend with a sex story. For the time being, the practice of loving men didn't seem like surrender. It wasn't embarrassing or doomed, inherently tragic or toxic. I had an urge to go back to the day I received Layla's text to reply that she didn't have to feel sorry for me because I'd learned the same thing about myself as she did the day she abandoned Dick, as bisexual women do when they refuse to repress a part of themselves, as anybody does when they affirmatively express what they want. The tragedy isn't heterosexuality, I wanted to tell her, but giving up on one's desires or never uncovering them at all. That's it, that was a little longer than I thought, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so, so, so much for that. I was just listening to you read and forgot that that was my cue when you were done. <laughs> um, thank Should you, that was so obvious. wonderful. Um, and thank you for being here tonight. Um, thank you for having I, me. Yeah, I'm thankful for virtual events because we can do this. Um, yeah. Well, so, normally I would be on a plane to LA, but I just had a baby a few months ago. Congratulations. So it's a little early to leave her, but yeah, I hope to come good. around at some point. <laughs> and you can bring her. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Um, cool. So I just want to kind of before, and just a reminder to people in the audience to get your questions in, um, I'll ask a few to kick us off. Um, so your book is it's a huge topic like you know there's just so much you could have put in um what how did you decide what to include what was your kind of research process like how did you balance the memoir versus history um yeah how, how <laughs> <laughs> um i mean it was the hardest thing i've ever had to do i think <laughs> A lot of people would have just done memoir or just done history. The part that I read doesn't really have history, but that whole chapter delves into the history of radical lesbians, um, many of whom really made it a point to sort of um, mine their authentic desire and um, actively choose lesbianism. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason why I decided to do both was because when I was going through everything I was going through, this is about my divorce, this is about me sort of trying to find authentic desire after a marriage that didn't make me happy and coming up against lots of roadblocks. Um, sort of surprised, I was a little bit surprised and taken aback at how many roadblocks there were. I was like, oh, I've freed myself, this is gonna be great. And then there were just other problems waiting for me on the other side. And contemporaneously, I was also reading a lot of history and I was reading a lot of my mom's work. My mom is Ellen Willis. She's an early radical pro-sex feminist. And she was a very prolific writer. And I'd of course read her before, but this was different because I was actually going through some of the stuff that she was going through. And she wrote a lot about her life and how it related to her feminist politics and her liberationist politics. And so I thought it was would have been weird to just write a memoir without, without putting myself on a continuum of history because that's literally how I was feeling at the time. Mm -hmm. And my research process, it was sort of in two parts. Like one was the contemporaneous process that I just described, but then once I started to write the book, I changed the characters in several chapters because um, I thought I was going to write about maybe more of a mainstream 
character from history, but then would find somebody even more fascinating and more apt and somebody who hadn't really been discovered um, like on the beaten path, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it was really a twofold process of, I mean, obviously I had to put together a proposal or whatever, but then once I sat down to write the book, I really went into lots of wormholes of people who I'd never even heard of when I, when I proposed the book to the publisher. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. I love that. That's really cool. <laughs> um, how did you, how has kind of, I guess now, now you have a daughter, your mother wrote about this kind of thing as well. Um, how, how did your view of your mom change as you grew up and how do you kind of imagine that your daughter will will see you? I don't know if that's like a huge question that you don't want to answer, which is fine. But, um, <laughs> oh no, I mean, I've been thinking about it constantly. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't very interested in my mom's work when I was a child. I mean, I was very self-involved like most child children and teens were. I didn't really have any idea of what she had done until college when I wrote my thesis on the 1970s porn golden era and the sexual revolution and asked her for help because I had vaguely kind of known that she was a feminist and was around during this time. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed her, she gave me a lot of sources and I started to like slowly realize that like, oh wow, like she wrote a ton about sexuality um, and she was kind of a big deal when it comes to sexual politics of the 70s and 80s. Um, and then when I was 22, she died. So I had just a few years of being a young adult, understanding her place in feminist politics. And then she was gone and all I had was her work. Um, and as you said, at the top of the hour, I put together anthologies of her work. I've really mourned through going through her work, but also I've, literally used it for guidance. Like I've done like searches for certain keywords in like her, her work, literally. Like it's, it's that literal um, because that's all I have now. And she really put a lot of herself on the page. So that's the closest I can have to asking her for advice, even though she wasn't really the type of person to give advice. What else is there so what questions because you've done a lot of interviews you've done events what questions yeah. do you wish people were asking you that they're not what do you mm. want to tell people about your book <laughs> that's a good question um there's a chapter in here that i'm surprised people haven't brought up more that basically doesn't have me in it at all. It's about my friend, Sela, that's a pseudonym, um, who's um, a black queer woman. And it basically delves into, it's called the vulnerability gradient and it delves into all the different intertwining vulnerabilities that people of marginalized identities have. Um, and I included it because I'm a straight, like mostly straight, I guess, white woman. Um, and I look a lot like the people who have been having this conversation for many decades. And it started to become kind of like the elephant in the room. Um, and I have, I mean, I have lots of friends that, that don't have the same experience. And I wanted to sort of explore their vulnerability because she was sort of having a parallel 
search for her active desire at the exact same time. And so there is this one chapter in there that's really not about me at all. And so far, I really haven't gotten any questions about it. I was surprised. I was kind of like nervous mm-hmm. that, that people were going to think it was like shoehorned in or something like that. Um, or that like it was weird that I wasn't in the chapter. But it's mm-hmm. actually a chapter I'm like, you know, one of the one of my favorite chapters because it was because it just sort of puts my vulnerability in perspective. Like, yes, I'm vulnerable as a woman, but then there are other people in my life and throughout history that have lots of competing vulnerabilities, um, which in turn kind of um, creates dilemmas for them when they go down a path of sexual freedom. And there are like far more consequences for them. So I I I enjoyed writing that chapter means a lot to me. So if you do read the book, I would love you guys to know that. (laughs) And everybody should. Um, I guess I've been thinking a lot about, I mean, the world right now and politics and how, how do you, how do you, um, I don't really know how to phrase this question, but I'm curious about how, you see that like the kind of oppressive overarching nature of the world that we live in right now as interacting with uh, people's kind of search for their sexuality or opening those kind of doors for themselves. I don't know. Yeah. Can you repeat the question? Just how 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 does the current politics interact with that personal journey? Yeah. And how can one kind of go on their personal journey without feeling constantly bombarded by this? Other I mean, noise? they can't. I mean, I think, um, I think sex is considered an extremely private personal part of somebody's life, but it's very, very, very inextric- inextricably connected to politics, both when it comes to reproduction and reproductive justice, which like clearly there's been a lot of changes and awful things happening in that realm since I wrote this book, but also just the, all the expectations and all the internalized pressures and all the role models and the stereotypes that we're fed from culture, from history, um, and from, from politics, the way that, the way that sex is talked about in the, in the public realm we're we're influenced by all of that and it's pretty much impossible to identify one's authentic quote unquote desire i mean you can identify something that makes you happy but you'll never know if it's if it's something that's like intrinsic or if it's something learned or if it's a coping mechanism mm-hmm. um and it might not even matter if it is but it's worth it to understand where your desire is coming from, at least if it like disturbs you. I mean, if you're like feeling totally fine about your sex life and you have no qualms about it, then I guess you don't have to go on this journey, but I just don't know almost anybody who feels that way. Even people who sort of brand themselves as like sexually free and sexually open as somebody like that, I know that I still had you know, secret questions and secret worries. And I'm a pretty neurotic person, granted. <laughs> but um, but I think a lot of people can relate to that. 
Um, I'm gonna ask, we have some audience questions, which is exciting. I, um, I wanna ask, I guess, just how, like what's the first step in the journey for someone interested in taking the journey, no matter what their life looks like? Um, yeah, where do you start? The most basic thing I can say is tell the truth, both to yourself and to people around you. I felt very much like I knew the truth, but didn't want to face the truth and didn't want to talk about the truth. And if you don't say, if you're not honest about your worries and fears, and if you don't share them with anybody, you have no idea whether other people feel that same way or you have no opportunity to connect the dots with politics or what, what's going on in history. And that's a shame. And it, it, it kept me locked in a relationship that was unfulfilling for years. And once I really started being honest with myself, that's like where the exploration could really begin. And it never ends, unfortunately, but that's actually where it begins. And that's why I opened my first chapter with the consciousness raising groups of the late sixties um, because ultimately that was, that was like the very earliest spark of second wave feminism. And it was about telling the truth, lots of different truths, you know, mm -hmm. and every woman had a different truth. The first question, um, from the audience asks this book or says, I guess this book really struck me as a grief memoir, as well as a sex memoir and feminist history. Did you know that was going to be such a big part of the narrative when you started writing? It is a grief memoir. I think um, when you lose your mother, I mean, I've lost other people before. It's not the same. I even lost my father recently and it's not the same. I mean, when you lose your mother and especially if, I mean, I consider myself very close to her even though she did, um, she did, put up a lot of boundaries between parent and child. Mm -hmm. I still consider her very close to my heart. And we were, we were, we never went through that teen phase where like I hated her, you know, mm -hmm. um, we, we were very close in many ways. And it is a grief memoir. Cause it's sort of, I mean, going through her writing is cathartic and it's not something everyone can do. You know, if you don't have, um, a mom who's a writer or who, who like left a paper trail for you. It's a very special thing to have that. And going through that, somebody, somebody at um, Tina Horn at Hazlitt asked me, is this sort of like a ghost story of like my mom is sort of like the ghost of the, of the um, book. And I say like, in the way that I finally feel at peace and I finally feel like there was like unfinished business and now there isn't. And I've like really combed, through my mom's work and found what I find to be like the closest to the truth that I can. Mm -hmm. It is a ghost story in that way, because I do feel like there was some unfinished business and, and now she's kind of been laid to rest. And like, while I will continue to think about her every day, I probably won't like write about her much anymore, you know, or not at least focus a big project on her. Yeah. Um, and you brought her, you know, back into the world through pe new people who are reading about her also. Um, yeah, I did. I will take credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, who do you hope will read this book? 
is the target audience? I mean, obviously the target audience is like women in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. But who I hope to read this book is men, obviously. Like I feel, I mean, not necessarily obviously, but I, I feel very strongly that men just like do not engage with this topic, which I find to be extremely weird because it's like, I'm talking about them a lot of the time. Like a lot of people yeah. writing about sexual politics are talking about men. And yet they like, unless they're gay, they don't often weigh in. And I've actually done a handful of interviews with men who read, who have read my book. And I really appreciate it every time. I'm just like, this is a totally different perspective. And it's probably a precious perspective mm -hmm. because this is so marketed to women. But I really hope that men like finally start to engage with these issues. They really should. It would, it benefits them and everyone. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, is there anyone that you don't want to read this book? Is there anything that you think? I mean, it's going to be pretty embarrassing when like my partner's family reads it. <laughs> and I think a couple of them are actually on this crowdcast. So I'm ready. I'm ready. You guys can read it, but I, I might be a little embarrassed, but I, I do want them to read it. I think everybody should read it. <laughs> um, Oh, this is a little bit about that. This question, it says, you really go there describing good and bad sex in the book. What got edited out? And was there anything you were too shy to write about? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I didn't have to pare it down so much as beef it up. I think that early reads and like my editors, I see that Carrie Fry is here. She was one of my editors on this book. I think a lot, a lot of the reaction was like, okay, but what is bad sex? Like what was bad about it? Like what was so good about that sex? Like I actually was a little loath to be graphic, you know, like a little squeamish because um, I didn't want it to seem like salacious, but I realized that you do need those details in order to be specific and vivid. And um, yeah, and I didn't want, I, I guess I've sort of internalized the bias against like sex memoirs where like, I didn't want people to just be like, it's this like racy, salacious, like mm -hmm. sensationalist thing. Right. Um, and so I was like trying to be demure, but like then realized like there were some, t some moments where I really had to go there because otherwise people wouldn't know what I was talking about. And it's kind of like hard to talk about good sex and bad sex without like really getting into the nitty gritty and I personally don't think that bad sex and good sex has like all that much to do with like the mechanics. Like once you have certain basic skills, it's like not really, that. that's not really what makes it. It's really more the connection between the people and the communication. Um, but like also you do have to describe the mechanics if you're trying to paint a picture in someone's mind. Um, and just for people to understand what you mean when you say good sex and bad sex too, you know, it's like, yeah, that it all comes together to to form the experience. Mm -hmm. um, what, let's see, what was the hardest idea or concept from your mother's work to either accept or apply to your own life if you were? What was the hardest concept from her mm -hmm. work? Well, there were these um, journal entries I found that detail 
painstakingly um, how sad and angry and confused she was after my dad had an affair. And this was like right before I was born, I had sort of vaguely been aware that it had happened, but I didn't know my mom's feelings about it. And these entries were just so devastating. I mean, if you had just read them in a vacuum, you would have thought, well, this relationship is doomed. Like, this is just tragic and the pain is so deep, but actually that's not what happened. They had um, a 25 year long relationship that by many accounts was very good, mostly actively good most of the time. And um, somehow, I don't know how, I will never know how, they got over this moment of, um, of doubt and, and disconnection. But it was hard for me to reconcile that with the stuff that she had said about free love um, and the stuff that she had said about like, you know, sort of being not getting all your self-esteem from your relationship and being single and being okay with that. And um, she was very sort of like traditionally head over heels and consumed by my dad in the early years. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure, she, and she was very much like I was sort of like self castigating about it. Yeah. Um, this is, okay, maybe this is uh, the question I was trying to clumsily ask before phrased uh, better. Uh, there is some really powerful material in the book about your own abortion. How are you connecting this book to what's happening now? Re Roe v. Wade getting overturned. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I sort of saw the writing on the wall when I was writing that chapter. Um, the chapter is about how I got an abortion and was made to wait past six weeks just to make sure that it wasn't not an ectopic pregnancy. That's just how my OBGYN did it. And meanwhile, in the news, all of these six-week bans were getting passed and getting struck down because there were there wasn't yet the votes or like there wasn't a Supreme Court case yet. Mm -hmm. But it was a scary moment and it was like a deliberate trampling of on abortion rights. And I noticed it and I've been noticing it for like 10 years. Um I mean, it's one of my beats. So I was very angry about that. Oh, okay. Um, I was very angry about that. It was still very theoretical to me. And I was actually directing my anger more to like liberals who couldn't say the word abortion and couldn't, and focused on, um, like we're, we're just sort of like using euphemisms to talk about choice and like not really being, um, not really nodding to, to people's experiences. Mm -hmm. um, honestly, I still feel that way. Like, I think if I was rewriting that chapter, I'd probably be like more angry and urgent and like talk more about the conservatives, I guess. But I still do feel angry about the way liberals can't, it's just like such a popular issue. I mean, mm -hmm. most Americans want abortion access and yet liberals still can't talk about it. And like, they're weird and squeamish about it. And they're like out here talking about miscarriages and like 10 year olds being raped, which like, yes, it's very, very important. Mm -hmm. Those are really awful, harrowing 
things that have been happening to people. But also, can you just talk about the millions of people, mostly women, who have been getting this procedure for all kinds of reasons, having to do not with like medical emergencies, but like because they're choosing a different life and they're choosing happiness and they they might be, you know, choosing, um, they're choosing a different path, they're choosing pleasure. And that's important too. And liberals just can't talk about that at all. It's not part of the political conversation. Right. The reason doesn't matter. And I feel like people are afraid to have to argue that. Or yeah. There's like a yeah. I mean, they're pointing to the most extreme cases, which mm -hmm. again, I get it. I understand why people are doing that right now. But like in the long run, at some point, we do have to talk about just like the average person who gets an abortion. Yeah. Um, and we don't even need to know the reason. It's not. Yeah. Um, who are other, your kind of influences or other writers that you think are doing cool things about it, writing in the same area as you today or from the past that you uncovered who we should also read? <laughs> um, well, well, first of all, Jane Ward's The Tragedy of Heterosexuality, um, the book that I mentioned in the chapter. It's really one of my aha moments and I recommend it to everybody. Um, and yeah, I, I discovered a lot of writers while writing this book. I, I discovered the political celibates like Roxanne Dunbar and um, Dana Densmore who like are, were polemicists. And I, I like really, really um, like don't agree with them per se, but I'm sort of exhilarated by their work. And I think the same thing is true for a lot of the like anti-porn feminists that I don't agree with, like Andrea Dworkin and Susan Brown Miller and stuff. I was like, I still don't, don't agree with you guys about the solutions, but you're really articulating the problem in a way that makes my spine tingle. Yeah. Um, and so I think like discovering those women, discovering like, Sheree Moraga and a lot of like the radical lesbians of color and and like all their poetry. Like I'm not a person who really knows about poetry per se. Um, but when I was doing that active desire chapter, I was finding all this like radical lesbian poetry and it's like very seventies and eighties, you know, it's got a style, but like, again, it's sort of just like put a shiver down my spine, like, Ooh, my goodness, you know? Um, people aren't often writing about that. So yeah, all of the women I just mentioned, like you guys should check out. There's, um, you know, despite politics and everything, I feel like there's a lot of joy in your book um, as well, which is exciting. Yeah. And the kind of invitation and freedom to explore articulated as beautifully as you have um, is so valuable people yeah so um, um i just got a text that um can i just say that mm -hmm. Anne said she had an emergency with a friend's daughter mm -hmm. um so she that's the reason why she's not here <laughs> everything's like i think okay but um yeah. Yeah, she had to oh i'm glad i'm glad to have heard from her yeah because i was worried <laughs> so, yeah i know i was kind of so okay <laughs> my heart is pounding um Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, she's okay. Well, she's okay. She she had an emergency, but not an emergency that like, you know, 
yeah where anyone's dead or anything like that so (laughs) send her um all of our all of our love (laughs) okay (laughs) I will Um, so is there any do you have any final thoughts or any um anything else you'd like to talk about before we say good night um um yeah I mean as I um as I do this at 9 50 p.m. and like I'm missing bedtime for the first for like the second time since my daughter was born um my partner is doing it um I can't help but like I mean motherhood has consumed a lot of my thoughts in the last few months and um it's it's not something that I explore in my book but it's extremely central it's like now very central to how I see gender politics like I can't help but see how men are socialized versus how women are socialized to um, to know about babies, to care about babies, to like just like how they how they interact when they have a baby together. It's all mm-hmm. I've been thinking about, and I, in retrospect, I mean, I guess I couldn't have known um, until I experienced it. But all these questions of sexuality and pleasure and what you want out of your life. I mean, I think they're going to continue to happen now that I have this child and I, I'm, I'm interested to see what happens. Yeah. I know. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure it um, changes a lot about the way that you just see the world, obviously. Um, yeah. Did you, when you were writing the book, did you know that you wanted to have children? Were yes, you, but you- I didn't know. I didn't know when it was going to happen it sort of snuck up on me. Like it wasn't, um, I mean, it was like sort of planned sort of not <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I mean, it was very sort of like, I mean, my partner and I had been talking about having children, but, um, it wasn't this like long, very deliberate process. Um, and so it sort of like snuck up on us like, mm-hmm. okay, this is happening. Oh shit. No. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's really exciting. Well, congratulations. Um, we will hopefully see you in person for your next book. Um, yeah. I love that. And I just want to say thank you for being here, for writing this book. And a big thanks to everyone um, who's in the audience. Our virtual. Thanks, everybody. Can't thanks see for you, coming. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.